Is deconstruction just a trendy word for backsliding or leaving Christianity? No. Deconstruction is a necessary part of faith, and how we think about it matters. Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Shelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 46, A More Beautiful Deconstruction. Today's podcast is sponsored by The Wisdom of Your Heart. Imagine having two legs. Two strong, healthy, functional legs, but then your parents and your teachers, maybe a pastor, the church you grew up in, told you that in order to be a good person, a strong person, someone that really does what God wants, you need to only ever use one of those legs. Now, you're a kid. You believe what trusted people tell you, and so you do it. You try living life on just one leg. You hop around. You end up sometimes losing your balance. You get pretty bruised up, but you know that you're doing what God wants. So you're being strong and good, even though sometimes you get hurt pretty badly or hurt other people around you. This isn't a made-up story. A lot of people who grew up Christian are living like this. Maybe it's you. Were you told that emotions are untrustworthy or immature or only capable of deception? Were you taught that good decision-making, clear thinking, and even godly doctrine can never be influenced by emotion, by our feelings? Did some pastor tell you that empathy is a sin? Or maybe you experienced profound trauma that shut down your emotions or made your emotions swing wildly. Living like that is like trying to live with only one leg when you have two functional healthy legs. You're not using the tools God gave you. You're only gonna end up hurting yourself and others. If you've been trying to live like this, avoiding painful emotions, ignoring how you feel, worried that your emotions are just temptations or that if you really let yourself feel it will hurt just too much, then you might be greatly helped by my book, The Wisdom of Your Heart, Discovering the God-Given Purpose and Power of Your Emotions. Your emotions are an essential part of who you are. Your emotions aren't bad or sinful. They're a vital source of information you need to live well. They are a God-given source of wisdom. The Wisdom of Your Heart is available at all the online bookstores, and you can learn more about it. Check it out at my website, www.thewisdomofyourheart.com. If you've been following this podcast, you already know that we've been talking about a sea change that is occurring in the wider Christian conversation, or at least the wider Western Christian conversation. People are evaluating their faith, their theology, what they've been taught. Many people across all different traditions and denominations are taking their faith apart in a process that's come to be called deconstruction. These people are asking critical questions. What is it about my faith story that's dependable? What does it mean to say that scripture is true or trustworthy? Why does the behavior of so many Christian leaders and institutions contradict the teachings of Jesus? What do I do with the abuse or hurt that I have experienced or seen in the church and then the cover-ups? Are the lines of exclusion that I was raised with necessary? Now, some leaders, some pastors think this trend is dangerous, leading people away from Christ. They see these questions as attacks on faith. Other leaders think that much of the work of deconstruction is just peeling away toxic and unhelpful interpretations and experiences. They see deconstruction as a kind of reformation. A lot of us are in this place, trying to imagine what to do next. 
Some folks use the label exvangelical, some consider themselves post-denominational, some say they're spiritual but not religious. Some of us have given up using the label Christian because it's taken on certain political and cultural associations that aren't true about who we are. And yet for many of us, Jesus still compels. His other-centered, co-suffering way seems good and true and beautiful and like God. Recently, I was reading a book called A More Christlike Way by Dr. Bradley Jersak. It lays out a vision of a Christianity where everything in our faith and practice is rooted in the co-suffering, radically forgiving, compassionate love of Jesus. Not just our actions, but also our beliefs and even how we hold those beliefs. Now, Dr. Jersak is not afraid to take on sacred cows. In a previous book, A More Christ-Like God, he challenged some familiar ideas about the atonement, the idea that God kills Jesus in order to save us. That's called penal substitutionary atonement. His most recent book, A More Christ-Like Word, takes apart the literalistic way we often read scripture. In these books, Dr. Jersak is contributing to this evaluation of Christian faith that's happening. In that way, he's a part of the deconstruction discourse. In a more Christ-like way, Dr. Jersak talks directly about deconstruction and suggested something that caught my eye and gave me a different way of thinking about all of this. So I asked if he would be willing to have a conversation with me about deconstruction. Dr. Bradley Jersak is an author of multiple books. He's a professor of theology and the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University, New Brunswick. He serves as a reader and monastery preacher at an Orthodox monastery, and he lives in Abbotsford, British Columbia, with Eden, his wife. Let's talk deconstruction. So very early in a more Christ-like way, uh, you tackle the matter of deconstruction directly. You talk about it, and you said something that caught my eye. I underlined it. I put a star by it, and then I came back to it months later. You said the impulse for deconstruction is necessary for spiritual survival, but the metaphor itself is fraught with violent undertones. So that's been rattling around my noggin. Something about deconstruction is good and necessary, and something about deconstruction, or at least this language that we're currently using, is violent and destructive. Do I have that right? Yeah, I'm not sure I have it right, though. You know, because in some ways, it's, um, I really, my heart in that book was to say, Alternative metaphors actually affect how you approach your faith shift. So if you're going to use a word like deconstruction that brings to mind like burn it all down, blow it all up, uh, that affects how you do this. And we could, I think our hearts deserve to be treated more tenderly than that. They often Mm. need healing, not a sledgehammer. Having said that, it's also not violent enough (laughs) because- in the in the language of Jesus he doubles down it's it, it is not burn it all down it is die and rise again if you think you're going to come in and just reform this old wineskin uh you you've not gone far enough and i would say that's also true of deconstruction these days in some ways right. it's gone right. too far in shattering people's faith and lives and meaning in other ways it's sort of like half-assed that yeah. it, it actually we need we need something that completely consumes what was. Mm. And so I am of two minds on it in that sense, because I see a okay. both and going on. This word may be new for some of us in Christian conversation. 
where does this idea of deconstruction come from? What did it mean then? How has the meaning changed? Oh, very good question. And so I, you know, I don't want to be too prescriptive. I think language is descriptive. So I want to describe how it was used by Jacques Derrida, the philosopher, when he coined it. And I want to be honest that it is used in a different way today, but it is used. So it's part of our language. So first of all, Jacques Derrida came along and he was his idea of deconstruction was this. We need to slow down and be more mindful of how power dynamics insert themselves into our language. So for him, deconstruction was observing how we talk, how we talk to each other, and how in that talking, there's there's these power things at play, and we need to notice them. So uh, that's what he was doing. Now, it's used in a completely different way today that's actually more modernistic. It's not even postmodern. It was more like Rene Descartes. It's radical doubt. And I'm just going to start dismantling okay. my belief systems, dismantling my faith. It's hard to stop then because you also end up dis, disassembling your the whole purpose of being alive. I get I get direct messages almost every day about that. I started by deconstructing my toxic religious belief systems, but then I kind of found myself leaving Jesus, and now I don't even have meaning. I've just deconstructed myself. Well, that's not what Derrida is talking about, but it is right. a common occurrence these days. It's a popular use of the word. So what I want to do is I want to say, using Derrida's sense, let's slow down and think about what we mean by deconstruction and how it doesn't just describe what we're doing. The metaphors we use form how we do it. They yeah. form how careful or how sloppy we are. They form who we listen to and why. And so... Yeah. I, I think we're, we want to spend the next uh, time together deconstructing deconstruction in that sense and seeing its necessity, mm -hmm. its perils, and its possibilities. Okay, so if we take your stance that we need to deconstruct how we use the word uh, deconstruction, what does that mean? What are, we, what are we implying, even maybe not realizing we're implying it? when we use the word the way it's commonly used now? So deconstruction, as it's commonly used today, tends to bring with it a kind of demolition vision. You know, for me, I see dynamite being placed at the bottom of a building and the whole thing crashing down. I see sledgehammers smashing down walls and so on. Now, there can be a place for that. When you renovate a home, you might want to break walls down to open up space you actually yeah. might need to remove an old building in order to construct something um, that is healthier and not been condemned for habitation, right? So I don't yeah. want to be overly harsh about, about the demolition side of deconstruction. And in fact, I think it's necessary uh, in some ways and in some cases, but here's where we're too sloppy. So we might say, okay, we've got to demolish something. Well, what? Are we saying we're demolishing the institution called church? Okay, if you think we need to do that, tell me how you're doing it. You're probably not doing it. You're not doing that at mm. all. You're, we're just being skeptical about what the church was, and now we're going to leave it. On the other hand, maybe we're talking about burning down faith. Is that really what you want to do? You, you want to take um, an arson's torch to your faith? That seems like a harsh thing to do to your own heart. Mm -hmm. So I'm wanting to slow down and say, okay, demolish what? If, if we're going to demolish creepy belief systems and 
replace them with something, then let's have some suggestions. So I would say, let's say penal substitutionary atonement is a paganized version of atonement that actually needs demolition. It needs replacement. Mm -hmm. My suggestion is that we don't just make up our own, that mm -hmm. we, we look at the historic Christian faith and say, all right, if we're going to deconstruct that, what shall we replace it with? I, and I think I have a track record of being a deconstructionist in this sense too, right? If we're going to say, you know, actually eternal conscious torment was a toxic doctrine based in literalizing certain images from scripture that has been totally unhelpful and in fact harmful, let's deconstruct it. Yeah, then I am talking about dismantling or mm -hmm. raising something. But again, let's say what it does mean. How do yes, we right. see this idea? And so I, I want to be careful in that sense. What you just described makes me think of my experience this summer with uh, my son and I resurfaced our deck. It was quite old. For many years, we kind of gotten it through by putting a thick coat of paint on top of it, you know, to hold everything together. But it was just starting to fall apart and too many boards were, you know, dangerous. And so we went through the process to buy new decking. But then we had to take the old decking off. And in the process of taking the old decking off, we had to evaluate the structure underneath the decking that had been holding it up. There were structural members that were rotted out, or there was a place where the deck was attached to the side of my house where water was actually getting into the side of my house. And so we had to take it apart to evaluate what was going on under there and discovered that some of what was in there wasn't good. It sounds like that's what you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's a magnificent example because I would I would call that example um, rather than deconstruction, maybe we would call it renovation. But here's the <laughs> thing. What you noticed was sometimes uh, when we're renovating our faith as you're renovating your, your deck, be careful that you don't go too far and destroy structural members of your house that are like required, mm -hmm. but also make sure you go far enough. Like don't just right. take the deck off and leave the, the rotten footing in, in place. And so I think this, again, it just then calls for mindfulness. Using a, a metaphor of renovation uh, brings, brings into the conversation that we still have a positive destination in mind. Yeah. Uh, we understand that something needs to change. We know that sometimes the changes, some of the changes may be surface. They may be small. We put new decking on. That's visible. But there are also changes that are more uh, central. You and know, costly. We had to, right. Exactly. We had to replace a structural member. We had to do some reconstructive surgery on the side of my house where water had been getting in for several years. And that was unexpected. We didn't know we would find that. And when I found it, I kind of wanted to just cover it up and not think about it. I notice in that too that your what you did was to preserve your house, right? You know? Exactly. Right. So <laughs> let's say with penal substitution or eternal conscious torment, I'm wanting to say like I'm addressing these things directly in order to preserve the precious structure beneath it, which was Christian mm -hmm. faith. Yeah, the, the the house of the Christian faith means something, and and behind that, I think the character of God as we perceive it is really the thing we're talking about. And the right? person that, of Jesus too, right? Right, right. Is he going to be buried in the rubble? Or did mm -hmm. we not meet him? And so if you think about your house metaphor and your wife inside the house, it's like um, this deck is rotten, so I'm going to blow up the house with my wife in it. And right. that's exactly that's what I'm seeing people do. 
That's a problem. All right. So talk about some of these other metaphors. And if you're proposing alternative metaphors, I'm assuming that means you're proposing them because they bring something to the table that you feel like is more constructive and more uh, more leading towards flourishing faith. So take us through some of those and talk about what that looks like. Yeah, sure. And I, I suppose uh, in, in many ways, it was a grand a grand effort to avoid using the don't throw the baby out with, out with the bathwater metaphor. <laughs> yeah. That's so old right. and boring now that I'm like... There, right. There's other ways to see this, and people are so complex mm -hmm. that we need different metaphors, and mm -hmm. where the shoe fits, wear it, and where it doesn't, don't. But even in my case, there is a difference between my theological deconstruction, which was what quite joyful and liberating, yes, and right. my personal deconstruction in terms of, of a meltdown that actually had faith repercussions, that, like in the midst of trauma, do I even trust God is good? So that's still right. a theo theological question, right. but it, but it's different than my other journey. So one was a dramatic meltdown, and the other was this kind of cool awakening, right? So I've, I'm again, I'm already rushing into metaphors, but let me go from renovation, which is restoring and revamping existing structures, to a completely different one. In the world of addictions, we have detox, which may be one or two weeks long. Then we have rehabilitation, which could be months to years long. And then we have recovery, and that is um, the restoration of health um, as we break free of our attachments, harmful habits, addictive behaviors, and then look at the pain beneath them and bring healing to the things that drove the addictions in the first place. So if I think in terms of, of faith, then I'm like, you know what? I understand when people need to leave church for a while, for example, or stop reading their Bible for a while, or even not pray for a while. I think of that as detox. Okay. Because, the, and I had to do this with my prayer life, where I had concluded that my prayers had been reduced to me trying to control circumstances and other people's joy, sorrow, and choices by telling God what to do. And when he didn't do it, I was angry at right, him for right. disobeying me. <laughs> right. It was really yeah, yeah. bad. Yeah, that's and, an upside down place for sure. Oh my goodness. So I saw that, thankfully, with a spiritual director who cared for me. And what, what we did was I detoxed from prayer because I was so attached to that form. And then we reintroduced it slowly as the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And after about six months of that, then I, I reintroduced the Lord's prayer because at least Jesus gave it to us. And it felt very bold and scary, but it's like, but you told me when you pray, pray this. So I began, I went into that. And so over time, my prayer life was rehabilitated after that period of detox. And now I believe I live in recovery where my prayer life itself is not toxic to me or to others. I, I like that metaphor because it's personal to one's body. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. then you can apply it both to your own soul as you do your body, but also to the body of your faith communities. Yeah. And isn't it a terrible thing when we feel the need to flee from a faith community because it's so toxic that it's killing us? And I don't want them to just feel guilted into rushing into another one. I right, get it. Right. Yep. Take a break. But I hope you don't live in the detox unit for the rest of your life. It's not it's not healthy either. So that that metaphor right now what is intriguing to me is by talking about those sort of phases that come from substance abuse recovery 
you're actually identifying that there's a different medicine for different needs at, at the time, right? That detox is let's stop the damage. Yeah. But then the next steps are now talking about learning new, uh, learning a new way of living and getting to a place where you have a a flourishing life, you know, that, that it had, that's not constantly fighting against what was toxic before. Those are different kind of phases of the process and where the deconstruction metaphor is taking apart. And so you've done that now, what, to what end, you know, recovery is a metaphor saying, no, we're going toward a sustainable, flourishing, healthy life. Yeah. There are those who think, okay, I've left, I've left the faith now, and that's forever, and yeah. that's probably the healthiest thing for me. And then they talk about their, you know, when I deconstructed, and I'm like, you have no idea how evangelical you still sound. <laughs> right. Deconstruction right. <laughs> is just a new word you use for conversion, and then they have a testimony of their conversion, and then they, like treat others as less than for not having their conversion. And, mm. you know, I see this all the time and my goodness, you're still an evangelist. You haven't actually changed that much. This is just conversion and a second conversion. And okay, so be it. Mm. So, I mean, maybe you need that. <laughs> I think I needed it, but, but just like to be a little bit aware then again, how the, the power dynamics of our old evangelicalism that we thought were, was so toxic that we may bring that in now. Mm-hmm. with a kind of toxic positivity about our great deconstruction experience. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and isn't it for you? And, and there are others who are going, hang on, my experience was deeply traumatic. Yeah. And your positivity about this does not recognize my trauma. And, and then they feel silenced and belittled yeah. and like they feel like I didn't have a good enough testimony. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly right. Well, the trap, right? I grew up in a very head-oriented fundamentalist faith community, and the the main thing, the most important thing, was to be right. That that I mean, having the right doctrine, that was what allowed you to enter the church. That was what you were measured on for baptism. People that were backslidden were people who had backslidden from the truth, right? It wasn't even backslidden from Jesus. It was backslidden Mm. from the truth, you know? And so knowing the right thing was the gold standard. Well, folks from that kind of community who deconstruct oftentimes, I think, end up in a place where it's still about knowing the right thing. The thing that matters that establishes your identity as being okay is that you're right. It's just that you've changed the standard and matrix of knowledge. Sure. So, Let's be honest, many who talk deconstruction have simply gone from conservative to progressive, but they're still fundamentalists. Right. Like they change sides, but not spirits. And I'm not saying everyone does that. I'm just saying slow down and check. Yeah, right. right. Is fundamentalism still part of your structure? Because if it is, then you didn't go far enough. Using the addict metaphor, we do have what's called dry drunks. And so a dry drunk is someone who is abstaining now from alcohol, but they're still active in terms of the addiction itself. So so I can stop going to church. That doesn't mean I've dealt with the character defect of, of like, let's say, being judgmental mm-hmm. and condemning and condescending. It's like, wow, I see that all the time from ex-church people. Right. They're very right. condemning of ex, uh, they, you know, of, of, of evangelicals. 
and and I'm judgmental of people who do, you know, I'm being it right now. So it's very infectious. And you're like, oh, I see. We've not yeah. gone far enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I get that. I had a, a conversation. I My uh, oldest child is a teenager and a friend of hers has invited her to go into a larger youth group. And so we were having a conversation about that. And I found myself saying some things about the evangelical youth pastor of this church and the kinds of things she might expect in terms of how this person would relate to her. And that evening uh, I realized, I was like, oh, you know, I've, I've literally been that guy. The things that he did, I have done those very things. I probably need to have that conversation with my daughter. Yeah. Projecting your own like judgment of yourself, of your past self onto this guy, even as a prejudgment, here's what uh, he'll probably do. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did it and I'm right. ashamed. Right. So, that's exactly when we deal with it. the shame of who we were, then we're less likely to be mm. uh, judgy. So if I recall, one of the metaphors that uh, was in this write-up was talking about art restoration. Yeah, Let's talk that's about a that really one. good one. Yeah. So art restoration, uh, I got that metaphor from Brian Zond. So what I mean by this is when you take a, a masterpiece over the centuries where you accumulate grime or people have tried to do touch-ups or they've tried to preserve it with varnish, you can, you can see how uh, very valuable masterpieces can become almost unrecognizable. So what do you do? Well, art restoration experts carefully strip away those layers of varnish and centuries of touch-ups. And, and as, as they carefully do that with the right tools, um, you unveil or reveal the original masterpiece. Mm. So here's what I'm assuming, that the historic Christian faith, the faith Jesus gave us, is actually a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. The funny illustration of this does actually involve two art images of Jesus. So in the first illustration, you have this one image of Jesus called Eke Homo, which means behold the man. It's what mm -hmm. Pilate said. Um, and it was an icon in this Spanish monastery. And so, but it, it, but it had, the paint had cracked. There was chips out of it and so on. And an amateur art restorationist came along and, and she gave it a go. And she so botched it that it became famous. And it, I mean, <laughs> it, it, and like, like you, it was unrecognizable as Jesus. And in fact, the nickname of the painting is, is now, um, Eke mono, which is something like behold the ape. And so this is what happens when you have a deconstructionist come along who doesn't know what they're doing and they start messing with the historic Christian faith. And what was damaged to begin with is now completely unrecognizable. Now contrast that to another masterpiece. Someone found a picture of Jesus, a painting of Jesus. And what was it called? Salvador Mundi, savior of the world. This thing had passed hand to hand to hand and someone picked it up for 40 UK pounds. So let's say 80 bucks. Over time, people became suspicious that underneath this painting might be something of value. So they sent it to an expert art restorationist who spent three years very carefully unveiling it. And at one point, something about the corner of Jesus' mouth became completely recognizable as a da Vinci. Hmm. And by the time they were done, they're like, this is, and it went up for auction. And, and it, I think it sold for something like $400 million. 
this thing of incredible historic value, um, a true masterpiece, it would have, you know, what do you do with that? You, you don't bring scissors. Right, right. To your deconstruction. You bring a care to it. Now, here's what I want to, here's my illustration. What if the Christian faith is not something to be trashed or cut up or thrown out? What if the gospel of Jesus Christ is something precious and beautiful? So in that sense, I'm talking about the restoration of the content of our faith as this living person who's the savior of the world. And with great care, we might peel back all the crap that we've added to it through the centuries, through theological misdeeds and pastoral abuse and so on. But I also want to say the gospel is not only a masterpiece. What if your heart is? Mm-hmm. And, and and how have we vandalized human hearts in mm. this rush to tear up decades of growth in somebody? And so yes. my good news testimony about that is I grew up in a home where it was Baptist, it was conservative, it t- preached hell, it preached Armageddon, it preached all this stuff. And as I've carefully peeled that back, what I've discovered is it's in that context I first heard the name of Jesus and fell in love with him. It's in that context I fell in love with the scriptures, and now I read them in a way that's life-giving. It was in that context that I learned to share good news, and now I'm sharing it to Christians so they'll become Christian. It was in that (laughs) context that I felt a real living connection with the person of Christ in my prayer life, and all of that has been preserved. Yes. And I've deconstructed the BS, and now I have a deep appreciation for my Baptist heritage because I've, I've pulled, you know, and it's not my Baptist heritage. It's the faith of my fathers that was passed down to me. And then I start exploring that, and I realize, oh, my goodness, for all the weirdness of how our faith was distorted, there was a masterpiece under there worth my great uncle, Willem, being tortured for in Czechoslovakia, my wife's grandfather being exiled and martyred in Siberia. It's like, why, why would you give your life for this? Well, because it's, because it's priceless, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, the pearl of great price. So what am I saying? Slow down, yeah. give it care, invest in this, because it's either the, the great faith of Jesus himself, or it's your own precious heart that deserves to be treated kindly. Hmm. That makes me think that in in a lot of the conversations about deconstruction, a lot of things are sort of being conflated. A lot of things are being put into a one package when really you're identifying there's there's several things happening that we can evaluate. There's my experience in a Christian community and how that worked and didn't work. There's my experience of how to read the Bible and how I was taught to read the Bible that was helpful and how I was taught to read the Bible that wasn't helpful. There's my picture of the character of God and parts of that imagery that were destructive or hurtful or traumatizing and parts of that imagery that that were life-giving. And we can kind of just go down the list. Yeah. And that that's the thing, that we've got to carefully look at the layers like this art restorationist is doing the varnish, the layers, the attempts to patch it up, to cover over the things we didn't want to talk about, like that requires a lot more nuance than maybe the word deconstruction leaves space for. Again, I believe in deconstruction. I do it in the real (laughs) sense and in the popular sense. But, um, uh, but I want to say that there's been this headlong glee about it. And what I, I want to be empathetic with people 
who, who, um, where there's a twofold trauma. So the first trauma could be the terrible things they learned about God growing up, mm-hmm. right? Or that first trauma could be um, abuse by a spiritual leader or like whatever the thing they're leaving is had a traumatic impact on them. But there's also the trauma of the deconstruction itself. Let's say someone needs to leave a toxic church, but they're also leaving the only community they've ever known. So the leaving itself and the yes. loneliness and yeah. isolation and the criticism they get from those people, the sense of betrayal, but and then internally even um, the loss of meaning and like panic attacks on Sunday morning because mm-hmm. you don't know what to do with yourself. So there's that secondary trauma or even of how the deconstructionists are impacting us and so on. The illustration I would use for that that's going to be in my forthcoming book is somebody who has to go through a mastectomy for breast cancer. So the cancer was there, right? And you have to go under the knife to save your life sometimes. You have to go through chemo or whatever treatments they're using for that. And the treatment itself becomes another trauma. And so you wake up from surgery and your breasts are gone. And you didn't get to choose how much you lost. Mm-hmm. So it is with those who experience the deconstruction itself as trauma. They're like, I thought I, I knew there was cancer that had to go, but I didn't realize how much of me I was going to lose. Mm. And I'm ag- absolutely traumatized. So then they go on Instagram and they see all the positivity around deconstruction. And it and it feels like this, that that the deconstruction is is like a cheerleader who's spotting for them doing a bench press. You could do it. You could do it. You're great. You're great. This is exactly. And you're like, I'm not doing a bench press. I'm under a bulldozer. I really, really care about those people. And that that's kind of where I'm coming from on this. It's like you you treat that person like they need to be treated so tenderly, so yes. carefully. And to say it was necessary. And but there are perils to this, and and yet maybe there's possibilities too. But I want to say that I don't want to say that like Job's counselors. Mm. I want to say it as a friend who's walking along with them and like, okay, this is this is disorienting. Yes, I'll walk with you. I feel like that is a missing piece of a lot of this conversation. That there's a there's a pastoral element of this, and even for folks that are maybe stepping out of the church and the word pastor is part of the problem. There's a coach of the soul element of this that that's necessary because like we said at the beginning, religion, however you come to it is ultimately a meaning making machinery Mm -hmm. and you have to have one of those. Yeah. If not that when, you know, you are vulnerable to any ideology that comes along to recruit you. All of your books uh, in this series have a subtitle about, um, well, I guess Christlike Word doesn't, but it's still infused, the idea of a more beautiful version. So yeah. More Christlike God is a more beautiful gospel, More Christlike Way, a more beautiful faith. And I would I would say, even though your subtitle on a More Christlike Word is, is uh, reading scripture the Emmaus way, that the challenge throughout is how do we read scripture in a more beautiful experience. Yes, it's a more beautiful hermeneutic. Right, right? yeah, exactly. It points to Jesus. Yeah. yeah, and that and that's rooted in this idea that everything, 
for us, if our if we're followers of Jesus, the meaning-making machinery is the other-centered, co-suffering, radically forgiving, self-giving life of Jesus. That is the lens. And so when you think about deconstruction, how do you yeah. bring this lens of a more beautiful way to deconstruction? What would a more Christ-like or a more beautiful deconstruction look like? Yeah, so if we think in terms of restoration, what are we restoring here, right? We're restoring the beautiful image of Christ and his bride somehow. And so one of the one of the metaphors I use comes from the experience of my daughter-in-law who when she was um shopping for a wedding dress, she's really into vintage, right? And and she had found this website where they had vintage wedding dresses and she spotted one that was exactly her size and it was um a champagne lace wedding dress sewn in the 1920s. Wow. It was gorgeous and she was able to get it for like 160 bucks or something crazy like that. And then <laughs> oh, wow. she put it on and she's like, it, it was like, I couldn't even gain one and a half pounds or lose one and a half pounds. It, it was so exactly made for me, right? But it had wrinkles and water stains. Mm. So the, the scriptures use this metaphor about Christ presenting his bride without spot or wrinkle. He's talking about the wedding dress. Mm. And so we took it down to this, this incredible, stereotypical Chinese dry cleaner. And we're like, please don't destroy this, right? <laughs> and so we, we left it with him. And we, when we came back, it was hanging in his window. And it was just radiant. And mm. everybody who would come into the shop was commenting on it. And the spots were gone. The wrinkles were gone. And his focus was actually not on removing spots and wrinkles. That, that wasn't his primary goal. His primary goal was preserving the fabric. And so that made him more careful about how he used an iron, more careful about what chemicals he used on the spots. His obsession with retaining the beauty enabled him to get rid of the spots and wrinkles without destroying anything. It was unbelievable. And then, and then she wore it to her wedding and, and we were just like, you look so beautiful. And she said, I feel like a princess, you know, a daughter of the king. I would call that a more beautiful deconstruction, right? It, it, it's a, this idea of pres preserving the precious and yeah. uh, unveiling the beauty. I do regard beauty as a criteria for truth now. Hmm. In the ancient world, let's say Plato, he's like, God is good. God, if there is a God, that God is the good, capital G. Yeah. And that good subsists of beauty, truth, and justice. And so the truth people, the head people, they're like, we, we need a faith that's really true, you know? And so they'll do a literalistic, mechanical read of scripture to make sure they've got the truth. That's the conservatives. And then you've got the pro progressives that are like, okay, we need the justice side. And, and maybe they deify justice even. And it's like, it doesn't actually matter if we love all the time, as long as we have justice, right? But we have this third thing that, that sort of adjudicates the truth and the justice. And that is beauty. And if it's not, I got this from Zahn too. If it's not beautiful, it's probably not true. Hmm. And so whatever gospel, whatever hermeneutic, whatever way, that we come to our faith, if it's truly Christ, then it, we're going to see beauty as such with a capital B. And that's what I'm doing here. That's why I think we have a, that a more beautiful image of God and a more beautiful faith in the church, in the way of being, and now a beautiful way of approaching the scriptures is almost certainly 
more true. Mm. And so I, that's, that's the outcome I'm looking for in my deconstruction. Yeah. Um, yes. Right. Not just that I'm doing it beautifully, but that I'm, but I'm drawing out the beauty of the thing that's there and behind the grime and behind the years. Did you catch this important idea? Deconstruction isn't just one thing. That right there is worth the price of admission. When we think about deconstruction, whether our own or someone we know or in the general culture, we've got to keep in mind that there may be several different things going on under that umbrella. This tangled experience might include someone having to detox from a community or a leader or a belief that has been dangerous to them. It might include facing that we were lied to by people we trusted. It might include recovering from religious addiction and perfectionism. It might include healing from trauma. It will certainly include letting go of ideas and communities that used to be a central part of our identity. And always there's the releasing of closely held beliefs and the process of adapting and adopting new ones. That is a complicated life experience to go through, and it's often painful. It serves us to keep these different elements in mind so that we can use the right tools and even the right metaphors as we untangle all of this. Because even the words we use shape the way we act and think about ourselves and others. So when is it right and helpful to deconstruct, to really knock down some walls? When should we be renovating instead, carefully disassembling parts of our faith so that we can evaluate what is good and noble, trustworthy and true? And when do we need a detox in order to just stop the damage? And then at what point can we move on to rehabilitation? When are we ready to do the slow, gentle work of art restoration? Learning, growing, maturing, whether spiritually or just as a human being, these all require seasons of stripping away, redefining, deconstructing what you once thought was certain. The process is necessary. But as Dr. Jersak pointed out, it also has perils and possibilities. If we can be gentle, compassionate with ourselves and other people, if we can remember the person, the heart, in the middle of the deconstruction, the process can be healing, whether for ourselves or others. The way of Jesus is the other-centered, co-suffering path of radical reconciliation. That means that even when the path you are walking is deconstruction, you're not alone. Jesus is walking it with you. And there are others, others who've chosen to take the other-centered co-suffering path who will walk along as well. May you have the wisdom to know when to deconstruct, when to renovate, when to detox, and when to join the Spirit in the gentle work of art restoration so that a beautiful faith can emerge. Thanks for listening. Notes for today's episode, which includes any links mentioned and a full transcript, something new that I'm doing, can be found at markallenshelsky.com forward slash TAW046. And if you found today's conversation helpful, then subscribe to my email list. Uh, you get two emails a month at most, more likely you're only going to ever get one. And that email will include links to my writing, the next podcast episode, books that I'm reading and recommend to you. You'll even get a free little book when you subscribe. It's called The Anchor Prayer, a prayer and practice for remaining grounded in a chaotic world. 
In this little book, I teach a spiritual practice that has been so helpful to me as I face the anxiety and uncertainty of our time. So subscribe, get that monthly email, and the free book, The Anchor Prayer, at www.markoptin.com. Until next time, remember, in this one present moment, you are loved, you are known, and you are not alone.